Promise no promises. Ages of receivership. The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series of episodes devoted to ages of receivership on generous listening. The series emerged from the Spring 2022 Master Symposium at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer, in collaboration with Wuslat Foundation, which focuses its activities on the act of generous listening, hearing beyond words, understanding it as an essential element of each of our connections and constellations. The contributions to the symposium were devoted to forms and ethics of listening and how they are entangled with aspects of poetics, coloniality, gender, spectatorship, critique and non-human worlds. While hearing has, until recently, often been described as a passive act, listening is broadly understood as an active way of engaging with the other, with oneself and with nature. If certain assumptions subscribe listening and storytelling to women and elders, the broadcasted voice is often gendered as male. The talks of this series discuss such ancient and recent ideas about the politics and gender of sound, while addressing listening as a key methodology in reaching goals of political, ecological and artistic equity, from decolonization and democracy building to issues of mental health. This podcast series features talks and performances by Kate Lacey, Ora Zatz, Dylan Robinson, Bill Dietz, Noor Mumbarak, and Jasmina Figueroa. Episode 4, Subject. I would like to introduce Bill Dietz, who is a composer and writer born in Arizona. Since 2012, he is co-chair of the Music Sound Department in Bard College's Milton Avery Graduate School of the Arts in New York. His work is often presented in festivals, museums, and journals, but also in apartment buildings, magazines, and on public streets. In 2013, he co-founded Ear Wave Event with Woody Sullender, and he has published two books of listening scores, one, on his tutorial diversion series, meant to be performed at home, and the other made up of concert pieces based on historical and contemporary audience behavior. With Amy Cimini, he co-edited Marianne Amache, Selected Writings and Interviews, which came out in 2020, and he is co-author with Kirsten Stackemeyer of Universal Receptivity, which came out last year. So I'd like to welcome him here this morning. everyone. I, I don't know if you can hear me. Um, I'm not going to use the mic or the speakers today, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but I'd like to ask everyone to just come over here. And I, I know that it's super annoying to be asked to do anything in like a context like this, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, so that I don't have to yell, could you just gather around a little bit? There should be plenty of space on the floor, or there's lovely couches on the stage. You can fill up the stage if you like. Um, as I, you know, as big as this room is, I, if we reconfigure ourselves, there should be no problem hearing. <laughs> Thank you.
Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, just, also, if like being close feels unsafe with a mask, there is the live stream, so you could actually just listen to the live stream. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, I hope you can all hear me, interrupt if you need. Um, in writing this in the past week or so, I found myself sort of obsessively listening to um, two tracks by Billie Eilish and Michelle Indegiocello, as well as like a 10 hour long YouTube video called Celestial White Noise. Um, I mentioned these now because they're also somehow present in my text, as is my husband, Khalil West. He's here with his feedback and sort of patience in my sort of working through a lot of this stuff. Um, I felt the need last night to add like yet another preface. Like you'll hear this text has like five prefaces. Um, just following all the great contributions yesterday. One thing I realized about my original draft was that as much as I sort of tried to implicate myself in it, we all don't know each other. And, and I wouldn't presume that even after Quinn's lovely introduction that you have much of a sense of where I'm coming from. And that's actually kind of crucial for sort of what this is right now. Um, my, this little whatever this is talk has also everything to do with what Kate yesterday called the labor of listening. But as my sort of way back background is in music and musical listening, and that remains key for me, and that shame of being sort of post-music, as she said, sort of remains really generative for me. Um, my relation to that labor of listening really diverges, I think, kind of quite quickly. In the book that Quinn mentioned, uh, Universal Receptivity, that I released last year with Kerstin Stockemeyer, one of our starting points is the idea that the kind of classical mode of listening, which emerges at the end of the you know, 18th century, turn of the 19th century, in tandem with the heroic arrival of the sort of classical modern public sphere um, is in no way limited to the classical concert house and its audiences, but instead that mode of listening is emblematic of a paradigmatic shift in receptivity that spills out into all manner of vernacular listening practices, practices that cling to everyday experience even today. Okay, so that was the new preface. <laughs> So this is maybe the original preface. Um, my sort of runner-up title for this talk was um, Mr. Subject's Phobic Ear. Um, we all know Mr. Subject all too well. I've written way too much about him. Mr. Subject, the citizen. Mr. Subject, the silent listener. Mr. Subject, the Habermasian coffee house discussant, Mr. Subject, contemplative, Mr. Subject, the rational critical intellectual, Mr. Subject, the long-winded comments in the Q&A, Mr. Subject, the human, Mr. Subject, who has rights, Mr. Subject, the anti-vaxxer because freedom, Mr. Subject, my neighbor in Berlin who screams out their window into the courtyard when other neighbors' music is audible, Zaidir Bescheuert, Mr. Subject can't be touched or penetrated because Mr. Subject tells himself that he is whole, complete. Mr. Subject is in control. Mr. Subject, never big on consent when it comes to others, would like to make it a law for himself. Mr. Subject imagines his body as all phallus and no ear. Mr. Subject doesn't hear you because he doesn't need to. 
Mr. Subject transforms listening into prophylaxis, not just in terms of a filter as mediation, though also that, but against listening as such. Mr. Subject's listening transforms exteriority, otherness, into meaning, information, identification. Mr. Subject is a musicologist, a film critic, an art historian, an active participant, an architect, a sound engineer, a pundit, a programmer, a professor, a manager, an acoustician. Mr. Subject makes sense of what he hears. The question is to what degree Pasolini's diagnosis of anthropological mutation in neo-colonial bourgeoisification still rings true. The question is to what degree and where Mr. Subject is with us here, is in us, is us, possesses us, haunts us, the degree to which we all also share his phantasmic phobic body, which is the title I ended up going up with. Or reformulated vis-a-vis -vis this occasion right now, if you all can hear me unamplified, what exactly is the point of this room? I also have to start today with an admission. I hate this space. I'm super, super uncomfortable here. To be clear, by this space and here, I don't mean this space or this context in particular, and I don't mean it personally. I couldn't be happier to be here with you all, and I couldn't be more thankful for the invitation to participate. But when I saw photos of this room in preparation for this event, I couldn't stop thinking that this room, this kind of room, with its white curtains and metal scaffolding and fancy equipment and white chairs and white walls and white floors, is something like the architectural equivalent of the white cis-hetero male body. Its structural claims to the facilitation of certain modes of publicness, transparency, discourse, audibility, its preconditions, seem like an obscene celebration of power and wealth. Again, you can all hear me right now without the PA, so what does this system add but authority? a doubled-down affirmation of a particular paradigm of listening and presentation. And obviously, I, like many of us, have been more than intimately involved with this space for a very long time. And obviously, who or what I am, what I is, shares very much with this space. I'd initially planned a very different kind of contribution for today, something more performative, using the space and the sound system idiosyncratically. But more and more, I'm thankful that that liberal impulse didn't work out, as it would have distracted from a clear centering of the conversation on the structural and infrastructural preconditions of audibility. Which is also to say, I'm highly doubtful that queering this space would do much. What I hope is also abundantly clear is that I don't mean to imply that anyone else using the PA or the space as I'm framing it is somehow bad or complicit or extra complicit. My doing this text this way doesn't exempt me from anything. I'm very aware that my gesture here is more or less entirely exemplary, that it doesn't resolve anything. My point is not in any way to suggest that speaking without amplification is somehow direct or authentic, not at all. It's not meant as a more ethical framework. As I understand it, listening itself as a perceptual mode 
is not just any technology, it's the same technology as this room, this PA. Listening and this space are redundant. Listening and speech are the same problem that we've already internalized or are internalized by the mechanisms of this paradigm. Listening's own authenticity claim is itself always a naturalizing, universalizing gesture of a particular paradigm, as though listening qua listening were possible. Listening, in quotation marks as I'm saying it here, is always a specific mode claiming to be general. To be entirely honest though, far from being programmatic, my not using the PA today is basically, is mainly a gesture of exhaustion. Voluntarily or involuntarily, can't talk, participating in the pornography of power is exhausting. Doing it this way today hopefully just allows a particular strategic emphasis on infra infrastructural limits, whether built bodily or psychic. Perhaps there's also an embarrassed melancholy in my contribution vis-a-vis -vis the notion of an ethics of listening, of audibility. There's something so attractive about that posit, so present in the room today and yesterday and in the ethos of this symposium, that listening could lead us elsewhere into another relationality. I think of the recently passed Leo Bersani here, as I've been thinking a lot of him lately, from a 1990, 1999 text for Artform that he co-wrote with Ulysses Dutois that Marina Rosenfeld recently shared with me, quote, relational being bypasses the defensive individuations of personality. To read art in this way with our bodies is finally to acknowledge our indebtedness to those works of art that coax us into self-divestiture and, and its generally unacknowledged pleasures. The scattering of ego and identity boundaries initiates us to the multiple contexts of a purely relational being. To describe the various modes of this human extensibility into the world is the only critical ethic we know, end quote. So for all my conflicted feelings about Bersani's work, the presence of this later phase of his thought feels hard for me to shake. Even in one of the passages I've written about sound, which I'm most proud of, which is something I wrote with Gavin Steingo in a way overly dense essay we called When Does Structure Become Obscene? This kind of notion of ethicality slips in. Quote, this is us. As a physical modality, hearing is a locative registration of occurrence. Sound is the proximal trace of the occurred, the perpetual byproduct of action, of happening. As such, it is essentially secondhand, always already a delay, a deferral, a radiation of the event. Sound is not a medium in itself, but rather a disturbance, a fluctuation in a medium. Unlike light, which is in no way imminent to an object described in sight, sound is necessarily bound to its source, occurrence. That is, can only be heard as a proximity to, or even a proximity between. Herein, one might also point to an implicit ethics of audibility, the second person of sounding, the you of its anonymous address. To see is to register a modulation of light, the filtered reflection of an interaction between materialities, photons, and objects. To hear is to be touched at a distance, to take in the other's deferral, end quote. 
When I reread this passage now, I hear so much at least implicit wishful thinking and projection that we would be able to describe a listening as such, a description from an outside, that in articulating or centering such a listening, we might understand or sense or participate in an elevated ethical paradigm, that that ethics of audibility is, at the least, a prospect that can be articulated. Also, there's my messy associative suggestions of that moment, my use of anonymity gesturing towards some silly idealized notion of cruising, as if that also did something as if any outside were articulable, as though a paradigm of ethicality could be imagined from a position, a paradigm defined by pure horror, ultraviolence, dominion, as though listening were somehow special, not just something as fucked up as anything else, but something fewer of us have a vocabulary for. Or, regarding Bersani, as though the temporary self-divestiture of aesthetic experience did anything but reinforce the identity of that particular self who can afford to lose himself again and again without fear of transformation. I guess what feels retainable from this passage would be a notion of contingent relationality as such, something hyper-ambivalent, something which practices of formal listening continually disavow. Contingent listening would be a form of involuntary but motiveless touch. And the motivelessness of that would be the thing which provokes the modern subject, also known as Mr. Subject, his paranoic crisis. Contingent listening, exposure to the radiation of change, of difference, materially interpolates us not as human or subject, identifies us outside of recognition, an identification incompatible with and intolerable for that guy. But already, here in the flow of this rhetoric, I once again start to feel the pull of affirmation. In that same pile of mixed feelings, right next to my embarrassed melancholy, I also feel guilty now, piling grim upon grim for playing the killjoy. Of course, this paradigm of listening that I keep coming back to that we inhabit or that inhabits us, formal listening as the logisticalization of contingency, the management of relation beyond identity, is not omnipotent, not monolithic, not total. I went for the title, the phantasmic phobic body that we share instead of the phantasmic phobic body that shares us not because the suggestion of agency offers a way out, but because the suggestion of volition makes things all the more complex. Which I guess is to say that insofar as sound and listening remain functionally, maybe not unthought, but underthought, there is a strategic necessity for making a case that things are worse than we thought. One of the last times I spent any length of time in the US, I was staying in a mid-sized town in the Hudson Valley. It was summer, and because the space where I was living and working had no air conditioning, the door was almost always open with fans blazing. Anytime those doors were open, though, I'd have to run to shut them every time a freight train barreled past just outside. The sound of that train's engine, the screeching against the tracks, its horn, each individually far exceeded the 93 decibels I've been told is the legal limit of loudness for public events here in Switzerland. 
Even with the doors and windows closed in that hot space, I'd have to sleep with earplugs as the trains ran all night. Since then, this not at all unique example has continued to strike me as a very literal and comparatively benign demonstration of the inequality of noise exposure, of acceptable proximities to potential harm in city planning. The quite literally deafening sound of commerce's infrastructure, the transport of goods, is somehow at least metaphorically unheard and allowed to continue or reduced to a question of noise mitigation in discourses of acoustic ecology. Parenthetically, I notice a similarly invisibilized relationship with the system of amplification in this room. Everyone and everything projected through this room, through the PA, is loud enough to fill the abstraction of this space. That is, to reach all points in the room, more or less equally, regardless of the actual number or placement of listeners. A phenomenon, we can all relate to this perhaps, uh, a phenomenon that I hope we've all been very embarrassed by when giving a speech for a tiny audience in a mostly empty hall from a formal podium through a PA. Hyper-audibilization is accepted more or less as a natural fact, as though this were just how publicness works as though this entire symposium couldn't have been broadcast in the lovely sense of seed dispersal mentioned yesterday via something like Nina Emga's remarkable Bodies of the Off-Voiced. But back now to that structurally inaudible ear-splitting train noise that I was mentioning before. Of course, the areas surrounding the train tracks were not just anywhere in the city. And of course, the inhabitants most directly exposed to this acoustic barrage are those members of the population otherwise also most vulnerable to structural violence. A 2017 study led by a team of UC Berkeley researchers entitled Race, Ethnicity, Socioeconomic Status, Residential Segregation, and Spatial Variation in Noise Exposure in the Contiguous United States correlated a national noise map with, a na with national census data. And they found, quote, evidence of higher noise exposures in census block groups characterized by lower socioeconomic status and higher proportions of American Indian, Asian, Black, and Hispanic residents. These associations were stronger in more racially segregated communities. Differences in noise exposure may have implications for more fully understanding drivers in, of environmental health disparities in the United States, end quote. Now, of course, the American situation can't and most definitely shouldn't be mapped seamlessly onto Europe or anywhere else, but I'd be surprised if the difference between American and European noise maps weren't primarily a difference of liberality in the allocation of resources toward a different baseline of sustainability and health. In that sense, I'd like to ask us to keep the questions of noise, violence, and infrastructures of audibility in mind with the following lines I'll read from K. Wayne Wang's, uh, Yang's excellent essay, Sustainability as Plantation Logic, or Who Plots an Architecture of Freedom? This is from Eflux. Um, quote, sustainability is the present story of the settler colonial future. Modernism and slum clearance were the prior narratives of progress. 
Not long before that, the story was settlement and civilization on wild lands against savage people. Undergirding the veneer of sustainability are settler colonial logics, plantation logics. Today's capitalist ecology is not different, only much more sophisticated and expansive in geographies so that the barns and blocks and browns and blacks are kept at much greater sociopolitical distance from the amenities of the plantation homes. The manufacturer of solar panels leaves toxic landscapes in China. Tesla home batteries frack indigenous lands in the salt flats of the Andes. Master planned suburbs need no jails as caged persons can be exported to distant townships. Toxins and state violence and homelessness can be concentrated elsewhere. Indeed, the plantation has a built-in capacity to maintain itself through its interdependence with racial violence and extraction in remote elsewheres." End quote. So this uh, April 27th, 2022 is Switzerland's Tag gegen Lärm, the day against noise. The slogan for which is, loud is out. Um, Karen Bisterfeld's 2008 book, uh, it's a great book, Mechanical Sounds, Technology, Culture, and Public Problems of Noise in the 20th Century, offers a remarkable account of the emergence of such days against noise in the industrial reorganization and stratification of modern cities. And I'm sort of getting to the end here. Um, but the issue in my mind is not just that our enjoyment of Ruhe, quiet, comes at the cost of others' suffering and non-consensual proximity to noise. It's that this enactment of Ruhe, and in parallel with it, our framing of noise as a problem of pollution, also affirms our identification with Mr. Subject. It perpetuates and exacerbates the internalized notion of listening as exposure to an, other to an otherness phobically understood as a threat to be externalized. Mr. Subject's disavowal of his own internal violence in projection onto and at others. Therein is, therein is maybe also a small irony that the notion of contingent listening that I've tried to sketch here does indeed actually contain the prospect of violence insofar as contingency itself must be inseparable from risk. If we were to want to be serious about moving away from a politics of perpetual mitigation, i.e. liberalism, our own exposure to risk in contingent listening would be a means toward an unheard of otherwise. In that sense, the question would not be of the transformation or reduction of noise, but of ourselves. So long as Mr. Subject's phobic listening identifies itself with listening as such, we're left with nothing less than to call for the abolition of listening as such. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop, and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science, and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. 
If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit detank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Editing and voiceover, Elena Cesar. Music, Niklas Kammermeier. Research team, Tabea Rotfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication, Anna Franke. Technical support by Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright at Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW 2022.